Uh, Father, we thank you that we can come together and we can laugh and, and sing together and bring praise and honor and glory to who you are, God. Um, there is none other than you. And uh, thank you for what you have done for us. And so this morning as we're here and uh, we're expecting things from your word, open up our hearts and our minds. Listen to the prayers of your people. Uh, there's ones of us that our hearts are hurting or confused or sad or whatever it is, God. Um, you know and you help us. Your spirit comforts us and your word guides us. So uh, give us something today that we can hang on to. And it's because of who you are, God, in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Deanie. I've never met Neil Wanless. You probably haven't either. But if I do, I can tell you that in pretty short order, I'm going to walk up to him, shake his hand. I will buy him a jug of pure leaf tea, invite him to have a sit down with me. And very quickly, I will say, well done, Neil. Well done. Now, the reason for that comes from my introduction to Neil just this last week. I met him through a headline in a real estate journal called The Real Deal. The headline looked just like this. Took it right from this journal. Powerball winner sells South Dakota ranch for record $37 million. Now, before we go very far into this, I want to make sure that, that I clear this up. I am not encouraging the lottery, not a fan of the lottery, seen way too many people spend a dollar on a lottery ticket when they'd have been better off to have put that dollar in their pocket. So, not a fan of the lottery, just want to make sure that we get all that clear. But what Neil Wanless did with his winnings is quite remarkable. Here's a bit of his story. In 2009, Neil won $232.1 million through the Powerball. He took a relatively small portion of that. Now, when you're talking about $232.1 million, a relatively small portion is, well, it's all relative. He took roughly $18 million and purchased in South Dakota the Bismarck Trail Ranch, 48,000 acres. According to everything that I can find on that, it is the largest ranch in the state of South Dakota. And then over the course of the next few years, he ran some cattle on it, he farmed a portion of it, and he lived there in one of the four houses. There are four houses on the 48,000 acres. Two of them are luxury homes. The one that Neil chose to live in runs about 6,500 square feet, and apparently with the pictures that I saw, it is quite nice. But then Neil had an opportunity to sell it right after the first of this year, and he accepted that opportunity, selling it for $37 million. Now, do you remember how much he paid for it? Right around $18 million. So he more than doubled his money. The thing that impresses me about Neil Wanless and what he chose to do is the fact that he went contrary to what most lottery winners do. He invested it well, and he has multiplied his investment. That's the impressive part to me. Now, it's equally impressive that when Neil sold the Bismarck Trail Ranch for $37 million, he surpassed the last standing real estate deal in the state of South Dakota. 
Prior to that, the biggest deal that had taken place was $32 million. So he surpassed it by five million bucks. But the most impressive part is the fact that he over doubled his money. That is impressive. So the crux of our conversation while we're sitting at a table drinking pure leaf tea with one another would look just like this. This is what I want to say to Neil. Well done, Neil. You are a great steward with something that you did not earn. That's what I'd like to say to Neil. Neil, well done. You are a great steward with something that you did not earn. Now, some of you might think that's not a fair statement, Phil, because he did do something to earn what he just did. He went and bought the ticket. Well, let's, let's just put a pin in that, and we will circle back to that idea. But if you really peel away all the layers of the onion, what Neil was able to accomplish since the first of the year, and really since 2009, came from proceeds that he did very, 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 very little to earn. That's just the truth. Yet he was a good steward with what he had. That reminds me a lot of a conversation that the Apostle Paul has in Colossians chapter 1. I hope your curiosity is piqued. Join me there, will you? Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 Listen closely to what the Apostle says here. It's quite interesting to me that it's been well documented that in the study of the book of Colossians, the section that we're about to read is the most often overlooked section in this book. And that's due in large part to the heading over it, Paul's ministry to the church. Doesn't seem personal to us. Doesn't seem personal to the people that would open the book of Colossians. And so they tend to skip right over this like a rock across the water. And that's a mistake, my friends. That is a mistake. You're about to see some incredible teaching. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I'm going to stop there for just a second and just make sure that you understand what Paul's talking about. He's not saying that his afflictions even come close to what Jesus suffered on the cross. He's saying that he's picking up where Jesus left off. Jesus' afflictions, his trials, his sacrifice, his suffering on the cross, that was all about the atonement. That was all about taking the sins of mankind on himself and by doing so, offering us a path unto grace, mercy, and forgiveness that will allow us to have a relationship with him forever. Paul's not trying to take anything from that. But then when Jesus ascended into heaven, he left his bride, the church, here on this earth, and the apostles were the ones to watch over her. Paul's sufferings were for the advancing of the church, the bride of Christ. So he was just picking up where Jesus left off. That's what he was saying. He's not saying he is like Christ. He is not saying that his sufferings are the same as Christ or that his sufferings will do the same for us as those of Jesus. Not at all. He's just saying that my suffering is for the sake of the church. And by doing that in the book of Colossians, you have to remember it's written to a group of people that he never met. Paul has given just a little bit of his own testimony. The sufferings that I am going through They're for the church, and I am willingly taking that on. 
I'm doing that on my own regard. I'm doing that for the sake of advancing the church. He's given just a bit of his testimony. And that is especially necessary because his testimony is under attack. The Gnostics in that area, Colossae, Laodicea, and so on, they're attacking the ministry of Paul and the message of Paul. So it's necessary for him very early on in this book to establish who he is and why he's doing what he does and even to show the depth of it. So that's why he says what he does in verse 24. Pick up with me in verse 25. Well, let's just start again, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. See what I mean? There is some great teaching in this section of Scripture. It is a mistake to skip over it, believing that it's not personal to us. It is quite personal to us. And all you have to do is get into it, and you will see that. You will see that. Now, Paul, as he's introducing himself, uses a really interesting word. And he uses it as it is attached to God, but then also attached to him. The word? Steward. The stewardship of God. Through the stewardship of God, Paul has a mission and a ministry. That is to become a steward of the gospel. But before we get into that, let's spend just a moment with this idea of being a steward of what God has given us. It is quite a conundrum when we stop and think about the fact that the designer and creator of the universe invites us in to the stewardship of all that he has created. That is true in the physical realm. It is true in the spiritual realm. The designer and creator of the universe has said to us, his children, I want to give you responsibility over my creation, over the things that matter the most to me. All we have to do living in northwest Montana is look around and we can see the physical side of it. The Kootenai National Forest is a good example of how God invites us in to the stewardship of creation. It is our responsibility to be good stewards of the forest that is around us. No matter where we live, that carries over. No matter what our geography looks like, that is God's invitation to steward the world that we live on, the planet. 
to steward everything that is created. Now that's an example of the physical side of it. Spiritually, we have the church and God invites us to be stewards of his church as well, his bride. Now isn't that a responsibility? Jesus would call the church his bride. That's how much he loves the church. The church is made up of his children, those that have given their lives to him. And Jesus says, now you watch over it. You watch over it. That's a weighty responsibility. Don't just watch over the organization of the church. Watch over the people of the church. Watch over those that make her up. Well, for the Apostle Paul, when he says that from the stewardship of God, he has been given a responsibility, he has been made a steward himself, he further defines that this way. He is a steward over the Word of God. He is a steward over the Word of God. That's the advancing of the gospel. And he has the responsibility to do that. Now, we hear all the time that expression, the Word of God. Spend any time around the church or around Christians, and you'll hear us talk about the Word of God. But if you are new to Christianity, if you are new to a relationship with Jesus or even to the church, that could be somewhat confusing. When you hear the Word of God, what is that? Well, let me give you three definitions today. Two of them I just lifted off of the Internet. That's where they came from. First one's from openbible.com, but it's a pretty good definition of the Word of God. Here you go. The Word of Christ, the Bible, is God speaking to us about His Son or God speaking to us through His Son. The Christian church has been in agreement for nearly 2,000 years that the Bible is the Word of God, one that speaks primarily about His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a good definition. It really is. Take a look at this second one. This comes from premierunbelievable.com. Why is the Bible called the Word of God? Jesus leapt out from the pages and still does. His personality, his life, and his love. So my first answer to the question, why is the Bible God's Word? Is to say because it speaks of Jesus. It is our primary and most authentic record of what Jesus did and said, and that I find this man to be amazing. Again, that's a pretty good description of the Word of God. But the best one, and it shouldn't take us by surprise, the best one, in my estimation, comes directly from the Bible itself. Listen to what God has to say about the Word of God. This is John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Look at verse 2, the first word. He was in the beginning with God. He, he, meaning the word of God is Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That's me skipping around in John chapter 1 just a little bit. But that's the description of Jesus as the word of God. The Bible would go on to tell us that he is the first and the last word of God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. 
So when Paul says that he has been made a steward of the word of God, he's really saying that he has been made a steward, he is responsible for the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, the word of God. That's his responsibility, God gave it to him. I might offer to you that God has made every believer a steward of the word of God as well. He's made all of us a steward of the message of Jesus. The question is just simply this, what are we doing with the investment that has been made within us? The Apostle Paul, according to Colossians chapter 1, would say that as a part of his stewardship of the gospel, it was given to him to solve a mystery. Did you catch that? It is to solve a mystery, an age-old mystery. That ought to be one of the things when you read this section of Scripture that captures your attention. It is really quite something. Two different times in what we just read, Paul will use the word mystery. So we ought to be sitting on the edge of our chair to figure out what that mystery is. I love the way he defines it. We'll put it up on the screen for you. Again, this is Colossians chapter 1, just a section of it. Starting at the last half of verse 25, Paul writes, To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now let's pull three things out of that. You can probably guess which three I'm going to just dial in on. The first is the word saint. When Paul was writing to the church in Colossae and he used that word, you have to know that he wasn't talking about dead people that while they were alive had performed miracles and lived a sinless life. We, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, turned the word saint into that. That's how we choose to define the word today. Biblically, the word saint is simply those that have trusted their life to Christ and are living accordingly. That is a biblical definition of a saint. The beautiful part about that is you're sitting around saints right now. You don't have to wait until after you have died and a group of people vote to venerate your name and your life to be given the title saint. God gave it to you the minute you gave your life to Christ. Now, isn't that a responsibility just hearing that? Deanie, doesn't that just do something to you to think that people would call you Saint Deanie? But that's true. That's the biblical definition of it. And that's a, a really intriguing thing that causes us to look at the idea of stewardship at a much deeper level. If God's going to consider me a saint and he's going to give me the gift of the gospel, then I better do something with it. I better do something with it. This isn't the only place in this book where Paul uses that word. Back in chapter 1, verse 2, he says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. That helps us understand how the use of the word saint in Scripture applies to believers. He's writing to the saints that are there, the believers, the church. And in the process of that, as he's talking about this mystery, he's saying they're a part of it. Now, the mystery gets 
unraveled just a little bit or unwound for us when he further defines who the saints are in this section of Scripture. And this is the curious part about it according to the mystery. He's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to Gentiles. Now, Paul, by the direction of the Lord himself, became the apostle to the Gentiles, carrying that mission after the Jews, his own people, after they had rejected the message that Paul was preaching, Paul started preaching to the Gentiles. That was something that prior to Jesus and even about 10 years after the time of Jesus, people just didn't think possible. God's chosen people, his children were the Jewish people, the Israelite people, the Hebrew people. For them to believe that a Gentile could be saved was almost beyond imagination. And that's why Paul would say part of what he had been given was the gospel to be presented to the Gentiles that they might understand along with the Jews the mystery of how Jesus would bring Gentiles into salvation. Because it would not be through a faith system. It would not be through religion. It would not be through a series of laws. The way that God was going to bring the Gentiles into relationship with him is the same way post-resurrection that he will bring Jews into relationship with him. It's through his son, Jesus Christ. And what a mystery that the doors to the kingdom, the doors to relationship with God would be open to the Gentiles. Now it had to be a hope of Paul's that the people in Colossae had already read the letter to the church in Ephesians. Because in that letter, he further defines this mystery. This is Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Listen to what he says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The Jews and the Gentiles can be together, can be together because of Christ. And we can be together in Christ. And there can be unity in people that prior to this moment in history had never experienced unity. In Romans chapter 1, Paul would say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. That's this mystery of the ages, how God would bring everyone into his kingdom. Oh man, did he ever do it. It's fascinating when you understand that as a mystery. Your relationship with God was a mystery to people until Jesus. There was no way for it to happen except for you to become a proselyte Jew. Well, today, because of Jesus, he's thrown open the kingdom to anyone that would believe in him. To all who would call upon his name, the Bible says. That's mysterious to Paul and to people just like him. And in reality, to people just like us. How could God reconcile us as sinners and bring us into relationship with him? Well, the answer is the word of God. The answer is Jesus. 
If there was a good point in this message to say a big resounding amen, that's it. Ready? One, two, three. Amen. amen. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. So now he's, he's talked about the saints and who they are and kind of blessed their heart by telling them that they fit in that category, even as Gentiles. But then, then he dives into the deep end of the pool when he says this. Tammy, let's go back to that slide. Here's the great mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, if you want to understand the hope of glory, you have to know that it's at least threefold. The hope of glory is at least threefold. There's probably a lot more to it. It's just these three that I want you to think about today. The hope of glory, Christ in us, Christ living in us, becomes the hope of glory. And it begins right here and right now. And one of the things that defines Christ in us, the hope of glory, is the way Jesus changes our self-talk. The way he changes our self-talk. Now that sounds like a psychological term, or at least a sociological term, and it's both. Here's a definition of self-talk. Self-talk is the way you talk to yourself, <laughs> isn't that deep? Or your inner voice. You might not be aware that you're doing it, but you almost certainly are. This inner voice combines conscious thoughts with inbuilt beliefs and biases to create an internal monologue throughout the day. How many of you know what self-talk is? How many of you would say that at some point in your life, if not today, at some point in your life, the self-talk that you have heard running through your head has not always been encouraging and given to build up? Yeah, you know what self-talk is. You know the danger of it. But one of the benefits of Christ in you, the hope of glory, is the way Jesus changes self-talk. Now, I want the Word of God, the actual Bible, to help us understand that. So join me in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 10. Revelation 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. One of the names for Satan, and we know that as an angel, his name was Lucifer, and then he was given the name Satan, he was given the name the devil, the prince of this earth. There's a number of different names for him. He's a thief and a liar, but he is also the accuser of the brethren. The Bible says he accuses us day and night before the throne of God. Day and night, he is there accusing us before the throne of God. Your name is not unfamiliar to him. So personalize it like this. Raina, the accuser of the brethren stands before the throne of God accusing you by name to God. But here's the beauty of that. Jesus stands there and says, that has no place here. That has no place here. And the things that you would say, Satan, about Raina are not true. 
She is my daughter. She is my child. She has been redeemed by what I did on the cross. And the things that you're saying, the accusations that you are bringing, have no validity. And the problem is, the things that the accuser of the brethren would say before the throne of God are the same things that he would say to us. And in the midst of our self-talk, oftentimes we hear the accusations of the accuser of the brethren. We hear the things that he thinks about us. And until we get those silenced, they continue to resonate very loudly for us. So the Bible tells us how Jesus takes care of those. Why don't you go to the Old Testament with me, the book of Zechariah. Probably haven't spent a ton of time in Zechariah, but you should in chapter 3. Because it's there that God teaches us this. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. If you're having a hard time finding Zechariah, the easiest way to find it is by going to your table of contents. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with the pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with the garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. That's... That's how God changes the self-talk by first defeating the enemy and telling him that he has no voice in the life of his children. He has no impact. He has no voice. And that's how the Lord changes our self-talk when we say, I will not listen to the accusations of the accuser. Rather, I will listen to the voice of the Redeemer, of Jesus that's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That self-talk changes. You get to hear something different. Now that's the first step in understanding Christ in you, the hope of glory. The second is this. When the Lord comes back for his church, if you are assured of your place with him, and Paul talks about that in chapter 2, and in what we just read, he said, live in such a way that you are assured of your salvation. When he comes back for his church, he comes back for you. This is found in Titus, Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. He's coming back for his church. He's coming back for his church. And Christ in you, the hope of glory, lays out the fact that when he does, when that trumpet sounds, you're counted among that number. And if we believe in the first coming of Jesus, we got to believe in the second coming of Jesus. Don't separate one from the other. If you believe in the first coming, believe in the second. And believe that if the first coming covered your sins, then the second coming is all about collecting you and bringing us home. That's probably another good place to say amen if you wanted to. You guys got to wake up a little bit. Stay with me. I'm more excited about this than you are. That's just cool stuff. Here's the third one. When the time comes, because of Christ in you, the hope of glory, you have waiting for you something much better than the Bismarck Trail Ranch and the 48,000 acres that it contains or is contained within it in South Dakota. You have the kingdom of heaven waiting for you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, assures that. And it is so much better so much better than what Neil Wanless just sold. It is so much better in the headline to know that heaven waits for God's children. Steward the gospel in your life well so that you rest in the assurance of that. And here's the joy of it. Here's the joy of it. By doing that, you will steward something that you did nothing to earn It was a free gift given to you. All you had to do was pick up the ticket. Just like Neil. You just pick up the ticket. This one happens to be to heaven. If you're not sure what that looks like, well, here it is. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Picking up just a little later on in verse 22, we read this. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring it into glory and the honor of the nations." But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's how you get the ticket. You make sure your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. All of that, when we tie it together and put a bow around it, reminds us that we have living within us Christ. And when Jesus lives within us, we have the hope of glory. It changes everything. Very possibly all of that begins by changing our minds. I'm going to let the Apostle Paul wrap this up for us. 
from Romans chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. He says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But when we change our mind and choose to live for Jesus, we live with him inside of us, and we live with the hope of glory. And that's at least threefold. So Gentile brothers and sisters, live as saints because that's what you are, and live with Christ in you, the hope of glory, assured, assured by Jesus of what waits for you. Why don't you stand and we'll pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, I can get wound up on this subject. I like it. I like it. Because I love you. But Father, I love you the same way John did, because you first loved me. And that's the way we all have to see that. When we recognize that, we recognize that you chose us. You loved us and you chose us. You died for us. And you have given us all the hope we could ever want. The hope of a new way of seeing ourselves. The hope that when you return, you're coming for us. That we'll be with you forever. In a place that we can barely even fathom. And Father, you did that when you died on the cross for us. Thank you. Pray for those that have yet to accept this gift. I pray that will happen today. And I pray for those that are still struggling with what they hear in their minds and their hearts. I pray today that will be changed. I pray for those that are burdened with life. I pray those burdens will be lifted today. In Jesus' name.